Woohoo! Good morning. How is everybody? Good, 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 good. Hey, we're talking about worship today. We're gonna we're gonna ultimately land in Second Chronicles chapter uh, five and uh, look at a passage that that really, for me, for about forty years, has just been uh, a central passage that that has really kind of captured me. Um, I, how are you doing in the speed read through the scriptures? Ninety day challenge. Some of you doing great. Um, I, I, if you're not, if you're struggling. Dive in this week, okay? Just jump in and and start. Uh, get a plan off off you version. Jump in where we are today. Uh, this week, if you're doing the ninety day sprint, you're in Chronicles. You start Chronicles and uh, and and start there. Chronicles is a really interesting book. Uh, hopefully, this past week you read Samuel, you read Kings, um, First and Second Chronicles. Um, when it was originally written in Hebrew, it was actually just one book, but it was written on a scroll. And the scroll was so big that they couldn't carry it around. So they divided it into two books, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. Same thing with Samuel and with Kings. Uh, there was so much material there that it couldn't all fit on one scroll, so, that, so they divided it in, into two books. Um, Chronicles is a really interesting book to just kind of give you a little bit of overview and background. Um, when you read Chronicles, if you're doing the 90-day the sprint, the, the challenge that's there, one of the things that you'll find is that there's a lot in Chronicles that you already read in Samuel and Kings. But there's a difference in the perspective for, for those different books and the history that they tell. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings were written um, as the nation of Israel was being taken into captivity. Babylonian, uh, Babylon and Assyria come in and they wipe out Israel and they carry them off. And and so those two books, uh, Samuel and Kings, spend a lot of time talking about why that happened. It talks about the sin of the leaders. It talks about the evil kings in the northern kingdom. It talks about uh, people who turned their back on God and the nation of Israel that turned to follow idols over and over again. In uh, Samuel and Kings, you'll find the story of David and Bathsheba, and you won't find that in in Chronicles. You won't find that that David had this affair, that um, that he murdered this woman's husband. Um, because Chronicles um, in the Hebrew Bible is the last book in the Bible. Um, this is, uh, let me let me go nerd on you, okay? Bible nerd time. Here we go. Um, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles was the last book in the Bible. It, there were actually kind of three divisions. There was the Law, which was the first five books, what we, are sometimes known as the Torah. There were the Prophets, which started with Joshua and, and went all the way through the prophetic writing. And then there were what was called the Writings, which had Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and it finished with Chronicles. Um, Chronicles really kind of gave the overview of God's God's working through the nation of Israel to prepare for the Messiah that would come. And so there's this emphasis on the the line of David because the Messiah, the one who would save the nation, is going to come through David. And so that's that's really kind of the big picture. If you want to go really nerd, let me like, give, give me like 45 seconds, okay? Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew um, about the 3rd century B.C. It was translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. That translation from Hebrew to Greek was really important because when Alexander the Greek conquered the world, all of a sudden the Old Testament was available to, to Jews everywhere and anyone who wanted to read it because it was available in Greek. That Septuagint, the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, is where Chronicles got moved from the end of the Bible back to where it is now. Uh, in about the 3rd century A.D., 
the Greek version was translated to Latin. That's called the Latin Vulgate. Um, if, uh, if you come from a Catholic background, the Latin Vulgate is the version that the translations came from in ultimately into English uh, for the next 1,500 years or so. There's good news, uh, and, and, and Chronicles ended up where it was because the Vulgate came from the Septuagint, came from the original Greek, or Hebrew, sorry about that. Are you confused? Okay. Uh, that's why I said it was a nerd alert, all right? Um, you can go back and kind of watch that again if you want to. If you don't want to, that's okay too. Um, the, the good news is what we hold in our hands, what we read is translation from the original Hebrew. It's not from the Septuagint. It's not from the Vulgate. It's from the original Hebrew, which is, is kind of good. Um, it's not kind of good. It's really good. Um, in the middle of Chronicles, there's this passage that has that I, I said has has kind of captured me since uh, since the time I was in college. Second Chronicles five. What's happening is um, Saul has been named king of Israel. David has has uh, succeeded him and is the king. David has died, and Solomon, David's son, has become king. Solomon builds this temple to house. God's presence to be the place where it really is the center of the of the Jewish faith, and um, and in Second Chronicles five it describes what happens as the Ark of the Covenant that contains the Ten Commandments comes into Jerusalem. Uh, read with me, if you will, Second Chronicles chapter five verse two. Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord's covenant from Zion to the city of David. And all of the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark and the tent of the meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The Levitical priests carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they couldn't be counted or recorded. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim were statues that uh, had been crafted that went inside the temple that were 15 feet tall. And their wings, the, the wings of these angels, spread across and they touched in the very center of this holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and covered the ark and its carrying poles. Uh, down to verse 10. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made the covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves, regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to God. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. That's a pretty incredible worship service. Wouldn't you agree? 
the ark comes in. The presence of God comes into the temple. And everyone who's there is so overwhelmed by the presence of God that they can't do anything. The guys can't play the trumpets. The people can't sing. They can't play the harps and lyres. They're just silent, almost paralyzed because the presence of God is so strong. That's what we want to experience, right? I think that's what it'll be like in heaven as we were just singing about I I think that's what we want to try and experience here on Sundays as we come together as best we can. If you've ever experienced that kind of worship, if if you can identify a time in your mind where you were just shut down because of the presence of God, understand that it wasn't about the music. It wasn't about the setting. It wasn't about the number of people that, that you were in the midst of. It was about the presence of God. When when God's when we become aware of God's presence, everything else fades into the background. When we talk about worship, about how we respond to God, what is, what is worship? Worship um, means simply to declare the worth of God. That, that when we worship anything, um, we declare its worth. And God, understand this, God made us all to worship. He in, Inscribed in our DNA is this desire to worship something, to ascribe worth to something. About 3.45 this afternoon, there will be some worship going on, right? Some of you are going, huh? What? There's a basketball game this afternoon, all right? And there'll be a whole lot of people, there'll be a whole lot of people that ascribe a tremendous amount of worth to what happens in that hour, hour and a half, two hours. To worship is declare the worth of God to the people, to yourself, to the people around you, and to, and to, and to God himself. When we worship, we say, God, you are worthy. The, the word means to bow towards, to kneel towards, to kiss the feet of. It, it is this sense of subservience to someone or something, to express the value of someone or something in such a way that we lift them up and exalt them, that, that we point everything towards that person or that thing. How do, how do we do that? It's by being actively engaged in the process. Understand this, worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not something that we can just stand on the sidelines and say, oh, yeah, yeah, kind of, I'm, I'm in, maybe. It's not that at all. It's active engagement. That, that active engagement may involve silence, like with the priests in Second Chronicles, where we're, where we're just shut down because of what God's doing. It may involve shouting. It may involve singing. It may involve giving. It may involve hearing from God's word. But, it, but this razor-like focus on who God is all of a sudden creates a change in us. It, it may cause this sense of celebration and it may cause this sense of brokenness and repentance. That as we see God for who he is, um, everything changes. God made us to worship and we all worship something. Um, worship is designed to not just be something that we experience on Sunday morning in a corporate kind of setting. It's designed. Worship, worship is an expression that happens in us every day. I, I love the messages translation of Romans 12. It says, it says this. Here's what I want you to do with God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. 
your eating, sleeping, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering, as worship. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture, to being an American, that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Be changed from the inside out. This past week, um, Deb and I worshipped at the Grand Canyon in Arizona. As we drove in a week ago last Sunday, um, we we were out west for my sister-in-law's wedding in Vegas. Um, uh, we, We left there and we went to the Grand Canyon. And as we drove to the Grand Canyon and drove through this heavy, incredible snowstorm, um, the, by the end of Sunday night, there was, there was like eight inches of fresh, heavy snow that was there. And as we walked on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, Deb and I were overwhelmed with this sense of the bigness of God, the smallness of ourselves. I don't know if you've been there before, if you've, if you've experienced that on the top of a mountain, that you have the sense that God, God with his fingertip carved this canyon, created these mountains. God is so vast, so powerful, so good, and yet he loves us. Uh, there, there were times as we walked on Monday, uh, because of the snow there weren't very many people there, that, that we walked maybe for 10 or 15 minutes and never saw another person. And much of that time, we just walked in silence, aware of the presence of God, worshiping him. Um, oftentimes, when we come together on Sunday mornings, we don't experience that presence because like some of the people who were at the Grand Canyon, we're metaphorically stuck in the visitor center. We're looking at pictures of the Grand Canyon. We're, we're looking at the stuff and maybe buying some trail mix, looking for a Grand Canyon sweatshirt rather than being there and seeing in first person experiencing God's presence. In the Old Testament, God's sanctuary, the place where he dwelt, was in the tent of meeting as the nation of Israel wandered and ultimately then in the temple in Jerusalem. That was the place where God's presence was housed. When Jesus came, when he became the one atoning sacrifice for us, when he took our sin and put it on himself, that all changed because the temple wasn't needed any longer. And God sent his spirit to live inside us. We, bec- we became, at that point, the sanctuary, the temple of the living God. God lives in us. So when we come together, we don't come to a sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary in the sense that the presence of God lives here. Lives here. We come and God lives in us. And when we come together, God's presence is here because he's living and working in us. Um, it's so, it's so critical to understand that worship is the re- right kind of response to virtually every aspect of our life. Um, if, you've, if, you're, if you're doing the challenge, if you're reading through, that there have been so many things that have just kind of jumped out at me as, as, uh, as we've been reading. Worship is the right response to grief. 
You, you probably read this past week about David, about his affair with Bathsheba and his killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And, and Bathsheba conceives she's pregnant and she has this baby. And when the, David takes her as his wife, when, when the baby's born, that there's clearly something wrong with the baby. And David prays to God for, for six days. He fasts and prays, God, God save the life of this baby. And on the, on the seventh day, he hears, he knows something's up. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. David noticed the servants were whispering behind his back and realized that the boy must have died. He asked the servants, is the boy dead? Yeah, they answered, he's dead. David got up from the floor, washed his face, combed his hair, put on a fresh change of clothes, and went into the sanctuary and worshiped. When we grieve the right response is to worship because all of a sudden we begin to see the life of this person who has died in perspective of who God is. That God is the one who gives life. That, that David ultimately in that passage says, you know what, I, I, they, they say, How, why are you eating and drinking? Why are you worshiping now? And, and David says, you know what, my son can't be with me anymore, but I will one day go to him. And so it makes sense to worship because of who God is. Um, worship's the right response to pain and suffering, not just grief. Um, uh, uh, God, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much struggle you have, no matter how bad it is, worship is the right response. Because in that, in that struggle, God shows himself. He sustains us through that time. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail. They've, they've stood and talked about Jesus and they got arrested and they got beaten, they got flogged, all kinds of bad stuff happens. They get thrown into the inner, uh, the, the most central cell in the, in the jail in Philippi. It's the worst place that they can be. Um, uh, verse 25 of Acts 16 says, at, at, after, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're worshiping in the midst of their struggle. The other pres- prisoners we're listening to him. Job, when he gets word that all of his fortune is gone, all of his home is gone, all of his kids have died. Job, uh, chapter 1, says Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. No matter what's going on in the struggles of life, worship is the right response because when we worship God, we see things with uh, perspective. We see things from his perspective and it begins to make sense. Worship's not just the right response when things go wrong. It's the right response when, we, when there are things to celebrate, too. When there's great stuff. When a couple gets married. When a child is born. When there's graduation. When there's a new chapter in life. When there's success. When we experience success. When somebody comes to know Jesus. Worship is the, absolutely the right kind of response. Uh, again, in the reading, I was thinking back to Judges chapter 7. Gideon, God calls Gideon to lead the nation of Israel. And um, and. And Gideon gathers this army around him. God says, it's too much. He reduces it to 300 people. And they're going to fight 135,000 Midianite soldiers. 300 versus 135,000. Gideon and his buddies sneak into the Midianite camp. And as they sneak into the camp, they hear this guy saying, I had, to, I had this crazy dream last night. There was this, this barley thing that rolled into camp and it wiped out our tents. And the other guy says to him, uh, you know what that means? That's the sign that God is with Gideon and, and through the power of Gideon, through the power of God, Gideon's going to wipe us all out. Um, verse, verse 15 of Judges 7 says, 
When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. When God shows himself, when he works in your life, when he gives victory, man, it's the only thing we can do is worship. Worship's the right response in times where we, where we reflect as well, times of reflection. Um, again, as you've been reading through the Old Testament, uh, it, 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 uh, it's so interesting to me that every time the nation of Israel celebrates the Passover, every time that they reflect on what God has done in the past, every time they pass an altar that has been built, and, and the writer says it's still there to this day, every time they'd pass that, it would cause them, it would call them to worship. Understand this, worship is not a spectator sport. Worship doesn't happen simply because you walk in the door of this building. Uh, let, me, let me give you six things really quickly that... Uh, Different kinds of people, five, five different kinds of people that I think are here. And I, I tell you this because um, it, I've been all five of these, all right? I, um, this is where I've been. Uh, the, there are people who come to worship that are, that are spectators. That are what, they're what I would call the spectator. They enjoy the music. They love the experience. They drink the coffee. They meet with people. But what happens here on Sunday morning for them is not really any different than what they would experience if they went to a club or they, they went to a concert. They go, they sit, they watch, they leave, it's done. They're just simply spectators. The, the second kind of person is what I would call an interested observer. This is a person who comes and says, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm not sure I really get this. They may participate or they may not, but they're really just kind of on the sidelines saying, I don't know if this is real. They're interested observers. They're, sometimes I think interested observers are hoping that God would somehow supernaturally come in and take over them. They're not participating. They're kind of standing on the sidelines, but they, they, they kind of want it, but they don't. So they're just kind of, they're engaged sort of in their brain, but not there. The third kind of person um, is... A pretender. A pretender is here, and they they may be participating in worship, in the singing, in the praying, or they may not. Because what they're really doing is they're taking up space, but their mind is someplace completely different. They're going through the motions. They're acting like they're involved. They're singing. They may raise their hands. They may clap their hands. But their mind is someplace completely different. You get to the end of a song of worship and you think, what is it that we just sang? I haven't a clue what those words are that came out of my mouth. It's kind of like when you drive someplace and you arrive and you think, how did I get here? You know, I don't remember any of it. That's a pretender in worship. What happens when you think about the music part of it is you look at what's up on the screen and and what's on the screen goes from your eyes to your mouth. It doesn't engage your brain. It doesn't engage your heart at all. It just goes from your eyes right to your mouth. That's a pretender. Uh, fourth kind of person is a judge. This is a person who the whole time worship is happening, they're, they're, they're thinking, you know what? I can't believe the clothes that guy up there is wearing. Um, they're, they're thinking, this song is too slow, or it's too fast, or it's too loud, or it's too mellow. They're thinking, who wrote this song? These lyrics are so weird. They're pathetic. They don't even rhyme. Or they're, they're thinking, um, 
You know what? This song is so old. When was it written? In like 2015? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, we've... The thoughts, the thoughts for a judge go the, from the words on screen to our eyes to our brain because we're processing everything, but it's going right out of our mouth. And our heart's not there when we judge. The fifth kind of person is a worshiper. That's a person who comes ready to not just hear from God, but ready to give to God, ready to ascribe to God, to give him the worth that he deserves. Understand that when we come together on Sunday morning, it, it is not 500 individual people who come to North Point and worship individually. There's a corporate thing that happens because our corporate worship is the culmination of our individual worship. If you want our Sunday morning worship to be different, to be more alive, to be more powerful, it will happen when we worship individually during the week on our own. A worshiper may be broken, may be repentant, they, they may be full of joy, there may be all kinds of circumstances. But what happens is this authentic, not just connection, this razor-like focus on who God is that happens in, as, as we gather together. Again, if we're talking about singing, we look at what's on screen and it goes from our eyes to our brain, to our heart, to our body before it ever comes out of our mouth. It impacts every aspect of us because we're so focused on who God is and how we can worship. Uh, here's, here's the challenge for us. How do we get there? How, how, do we, how do we experience personally that kind of worship? If you go back to Second Chronicles 5 and think about that story, um, there was all kinds of preparation that took place before that moment. You've got, you've got priests that are that, uh, 120 trumpet players just playing together by accident. That's not happening, right? They had prepared a ton. The, the people who were playing the harps and lyres, they had practiced. The people who sang, they had practiced. They were ready. They anticipated that consecration service, that time of dedication that was going to be there. So when it happened, they were prepared and ready to go. They, they utilized their best gifts to worship God. They anticipated God being there in their presence that morning. Let me, get, let me give you six things that I think that you can do that can transform your personal worship here on Sunday mornings. Uh, these same things, uh, I, I think, um, can be integrated in, into your life individually as well. But let me, let me give you six things that, that can help prepare you for what we do together on Sunday morning. The first thing is to just start with you. Start on Saturday to think about Sunday morning. Think about what time you set your alarm clock and allow yourself enough time that you don't have the pressure, that you don't value the sleep more than you value the interaction with God. I think Satan uses the time an hour or two before worship um, uh, incredibly valuably. Satan, Satan has husband and wives picking at each other. He has kids vomit, you know, before you come to church. He, <laughs> He will do all kinds of stuff to distract us. So we've got to start with ourselves to prepare. For me, I can't do stuff on Saturday night and have my mind be in focus for Sunday morning. I, I say that as a worshiper as well as a leader in that process. Um, read scripture before you come. Pray and, and come. Um, uh, listen, listen patiently. 
Uh, second thing is this, to expect and anticipate God's presence. Know that God is going to be here. Uh, again, God's presence is in us. We don't have to come waiting for him to arrive here. God is here as we come. God is here, and so we need to expect and hear from him. Hear this very clearly. If you leave the Sunday morning experience and think, eh, I don't think God was there, I didn't get much out of that, the problem is not with God. The issue is with us if we're not hearing from God. Expect, anticipate God's presence. The third thing, and this is kind of a weird thing, but I I think that this is very true. Interact with other people. When you come, don't, don't get here just simply in time for the beginning of the service. Walk in from the parking lot, set yourself down, expect to engage in worship, and then walk out before the service is done. Interact with other people. I, 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 can't, I can't express strongly enough how our corporate worship is impacted when I know that the people that I'm worshiping around are going through all kinds of different life stuff. This couple just had babies. And they're experiencing the joy of that. This person over here, their, their dad's dying and they're struggling with his death. This person over here lost their job and they don't know how God's going to provide for that. This, this couple, is uh, their, their marriage is struggling and they're just trying to hang in and hear from God. This person is overcoming addiction through what God's doing at Celebrate Recovery. And we all worship together and we look around and see each other and interact with each other and think, God is so big and so good. Man, don't try and do it alone. Don't come in and pop out and think that that's enough. Come with gratitude in your hearts. When I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to the Thanksgiving time. We talked about you know, making a list of all the things that we're grateful for, a thousand things that you're grateful for. When you prepare to come to worship, start ticking down through the list of what God has been doing in your life, how he's provided, how he's taken care of you, of you how, the things that he's done, how he has helped you overcome sin. Because when you come with that sense of gratitude, man, the ex- what you experience is electric because God's presence is here. The, the fifth thing is this, participate eagerly. Go through that full worship loop. In, in worship, as we sing, as we pray, as we read scripture, let, let what's there go from your eyes to your brain, to your heart, to your body before it comes out your mouth. Participate eagerly. Scripture says, clap your hands to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Don't be passive. Don't be a spectator. Worship's not a spectator sport. Last thing is this. Play to an audience of one. Um, Recognize that when we worship, it's all about God, not anybody else, not all the people around us. Stop worrying about what are people going to think if I raise my hands, if I sit down, if I kneel, if I cry. If I come down front, stop thinking about that. There's an audience of one. One of the things I love about Night to Shine, two weeks ago we did Night to Shine. We did this, this dance party, a prom kind of experience for special needs teens and adults. Um, man, when they dance, they could care less what anybody else thinks. I, I can still see in my mind this one tall, skinny guy that's just out on the dance floor. The music's playing. And he's just jumping up and down, just jumping up and down, jumping up and down. No sense of concern about what anyone else might think. 
Carson Wentz is the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. A year ago was his first year in the, in the NFL, and he led the Eagles into the playoffs, got hurt, and, and then didn't get to play when the Eagles won, won the Super Bowl. Um, this year, again, he's, he's their quarterback, got hurt again. But Carson Wentz has a foundation that he established that's called Audience of One. That logo that's on his shirt is the Audience of One logo. Carson Wentz said that he did that so that it would be a consistent reminder to him on the football field as he interacts with fans, as he interacts with his family, as he goes out shopping, that, that there is only one person that matters. That, that, that one, one concern that he has about how he lives his life, and that's God. God is that audience of one. Play to an audience of one. Um, when that happens... You, you will never leave corporate worship, Sunday morning experience, disappointed. If you can do those six, those six things, you'll never leave disappointed. You won't be frustrated by technical issues, by missed notes. You won't be frustrated by the color of the carpet, by songs that you think are too high or too low, too fast or too slow. You won't think, oh man, that service was way too long. Yeah. You, you, you may think, man, that was way too short. Instead, prepare, prepare, prepare for worship. Um, if you've been reading um, in First in Kings 17, there's a story of a, of a prophet uh, from Israel called Elijah. Uh, uh, this prophet goes and talks to the king, King Ahab, who's an evil, evil king. And God tells him to tell Ahab that there's going to be a drought. So Elijah comes and talks to Ahab and says, you know what, it's not going to rain for several years. And that drought that happened as a result of Elijah's prophecy, it was huge. It didn't just destroy their crops, it destroyed all the, all the grass and stuff. So, so all of their animals, their flocks, their, their goats, their sheep, their cattle didn't have any place to eat. The, the nation was really struggling. And in the midst of that, Elijah says to King Ahab, you know what, um, you've, you have forsaken God, you've turned your back on God, we need to have a contest between God and Baal, one of the, one of the idols that's there. The prophets of Baal. And so, um, so Elijah sets up this contest between the 450 prophets of Baal and, and, and God and says, you know what, we'll build altars, we'll put sacrifices on top, and we'll see whosoever God comes down and burns up the sacrifice, that's who's going to be the true God. So they, they do it. The prophets of Baal spend six or eight hours calling out to Baal, cutting themselves, doing all kinds of stuff, saying, oh, Baal, 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 Baal. Um, Baal doesn't answer because he doesn't exist. He's an idol. And, and towards evening, it says, um, Elijah put the sacrifice on his idol, uh, on his altar, and had people, had the, the, the people pour water on the idol. Four jarfuls of water, three times. So much so that the sacrifice is saturated, the wood is saturated, the rocks are saturated, and there's a trench of water around this altar that, that's there. And Elijah prays. And God supernaturally comes and bursts the thing into flame. We don't know if that was lightning. We don't know if it just spontaneously combusted. Scripture doesn't really explain that. But it caught on fire. And here's what happened. The nation of Israel fell to their faces and worshipped. They said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The prophets of Baal were, were killed. And the nation turned back to God. Elijah sends word 
to Ahab and says, you know what? There's going to be rain and you need to be ready for it. He sends a servant to go look towards the west, towards the Mediterranean Sea. And the servant goes and six times he comes back and says, there's blue sky, got nothing. What am I supposed to see? uh, Elijah every time says, "Go, go check again. The seventh time he comes back and the servant says this, you know what? On the horizon, there's a cloud the size of a man's fist. And Elijah says, go tell Ahab, because it's going to storm. We entered this series because my sense has been that we've got a whole lot of folks who are in spiritual drought, that they've been distracted by idols, by distracted by all kinds of stuff. And the way to see God again in a fresh way is to dive into his word. Rain's coming. We're gonna, the band's going to sing a song band's going to sing a song that we've never used here before. Let me just encourage you to sit until you're ready to stand. Uh, Maybe the chorus, the second chorus, whatever. Rain's coming. It's the presence of God.